0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family.
1: Hello, Dressage Radio listeners. This is Ashley Winch from Kansas City, Missouri, and you know me as the Podcast Operations Coordinator here at Horse Radio Network. As you may know, this month we're spending time with our friends Aviva and Stephanie over at Dersage Today. This episode they discuss ideas of what makes a good student and then Aviva's favorite test and level to judge in her Ask the L segment. They also interview Chelsea Kennedy about her road to enlightenment and how mindfulness has influenced her professional career as a dressage and event rider after a quick word from our title sponsor, Kentucky Performance Products.
0: This Nutrition Minute is brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, the company that simplifies your search for research-proven nutritional supplements at kppusa.com.
2: The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Feeding your horse starch-laden grains can lead to colic, laminitis, and metabolic disease. Today, nutritionists are recommending the use of high-quality fat to provide healthy calories. Fat is an extraordinary energy source. It's readily utilized by the horse and contains more than two times the calories of starchy grains. Replacing grain with a high-quality fat supplement reduces a horse's risk of developing health problems. Equijuul Stabilized Rice Bran is an excellent fat supplement. It contains a balanced calcium to phosphorus ratio and won't cause mineral imbalances when added to the diet. Its all-natural ingredients are high in healthy fat and fiber. And best of all, horses fueled by EquiJoule stay calmer and more focused on the job at hand. When you need to add healthy calories to your horse's diet, choose EquiJoule. To learn more, visit Kentucky Performance Products at kppusa.com.
0: This Nutritional Minute has been brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. You can find all of their terrific products at kppusa.com.
1: And now, Glenn is joined by Susan Strasser from Fry's Insurance to explain the importance of farm owner's insurance, what it covers, who needs it, and the difference between homeowner's insurance.
3: Welcome
4: to Horse Insurance 101 by Fry's Equine Insurance at com.
0: Well, Glenn, back with you, founder of the Horse Radio Network and host of Horses in the Morning. As I said in the past, one of our most requested segments... We have gotten from listeners is about insurance for your horse and your farm. Susan Straser is here from Fry's Insurance and has agreed to help us with this five-part series that we're putting out one a month, and she's helping us understand what we're buying and what we need. And if you missed the last two months, we discussed horse mortality and health insurance and liability insurance, and you can find those at horseradionetwork.com/slash insurance. Today, in part three, we're talking about farm owners insurance. So, Susan. What's a farm owner's policy and how does it differ from a horse, a homeowner's policy?
3: Well, Glenn, that's a good question. A lot of people don't understand that there is a difference between these policies. So we all understand a homeowner's policy; it's going to protect our home if there's storm damage or wind damage. We also understand that there's some liability coverage. Somebody comes in the house, uh, you know, trips over a rug and gets hurt. Um, those are all covered in your standard homeowner's policies. How a farm owner's policy is different is it expands that coverage a little bit. So in our case, because all we do are equine farms, it's going to provide you that same basic coverage on your house and your personal liability, but it's also going to extend out to cover your barns, uh, your farm equipment, and it's also going to um, have the opportunity to include your equine liability in there as well. So
0: what is a farm owner's policy and how does it differ from a homeowner's policy?
3: That's a very good question. Um, most of us understand a homeowner's policy. It's going to cover our home in case of storm damage or other type of covered damages, but it'll also cover our personal liability. A farm owner's policy does the same thing except it extends that coverage out to our barns. Uh, to our farm equipment, and it can also bring in our equine liability coverage, which a lot of times is lacking on a homeowner's policy. So if you um, own your own property and you need to cover your barns, a lot of times on a homeowner's policy, you are not getting a good replacement cost value on your barns. And that is something important that we look at to make sure that you have the right coverage as well as picking up the liability you need on your horses.
0: So you brought up replacement costs. How is that determined anyway?
3: Okay, so replacement costs... Is the the amount that it would cost to replace your barn or your building or your house at today's as it rates stands, as
0: opposed to when I built it? Or exactly, it, okay.
3: exactly, we're looking to make you whole again if there's some kind of a damage to so it. So if
0: I built it 20 years ago, and obviously things it was 25 percent the cost of building one now. Uh, we're looking at today's replacement costs.
3: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. will that. Yes. So what we do as an agency is we take some information about your barns. We're looking at when it was built, um, what it is built with, uh, what kind of siding, what kind of roof, how many stalls are in it. So basically we want to put all the pieces together to what it would cost to rebuild your barn. So we have a program that is provided by our insurance companies that we plug in this information and then it spits out a worksheet for us that gives us the replacement cost value. Now, we like to send that to our insureds because it's important that you are part of the process in determining what that replacement cost is because there are so many factors. Is there electric in the building? Is there water running in the buildings? How fancy are the stalls? Those are all things that can bring up a value on your barn. And it's important to make sure that you're insured properly because the time to find that out is not at a claim because that's when everyone um, is stressed out. We want to make sure that you've got a good value up front. Plus having your barn insured properly um, could affect if there's a partial claim. So for example, if you have a $200,000 barn and you've only insured it at a hundred thousand and then down the road, there's a windstorm that takes off part of your roof and it's a $10,000 fix because you're only insured at at 50% of the value you're probably only going to get paid around 50% of that claim so it's very important to make sure that that barns and buildings and your house are insured at replacement cost
0: well so that you brought up earlier what about equipment tractors and and how about tax some people own a you know a lot of tech
3: exactly and a lot of homeowners policies again do not cover these things as part of your your policy. I'm shopping for a uh,
0: tractor right now, Susan. They ain't cheap.
3: No, no, <laughs> not right. at all. They used to be and, cheap. And a lot They're of not cheap anymore. Cheap either. That's <laughs> no, right. Yeah. That's right. So definitely we can schedule your farm equipment and your tax. So tax is not considered household property. So we we know that a part of our homeowners and farm owners policies we have so much coverage for clothing and furniture and decorations and things like that in the house, but TAC is not considered household property. So you would have to list that separately. Um, same with your equipment and tractors. Uh, these items are typically insured um, as an, on an actual cash value. So they are going to look at depreciation if there is a claim, uh, but you want to list that out to make sure that you are covered in case of a loss that you don't have to put out all that out-of-pocket expense to replace what you need.
0: Okay, so let's say I'm more than a homeowner, uh, I you know, with a few horses, and I actually run a training or boarding facility. Then it is a policy change? The farm owner's a good policy? Good question. Yeah.
3: Yep. If you, if you have a typical homeowner's policy, and you run a, a boarding business or other type of equine business on your property, usually your homeowner's policy will exclude coverage or not put any coverage on the barns, even if they're listed on the policy. So that's something that everyone needs to really look at. You need to understand what your policy covers and what it doesn't cover. So that's what the farm owner's policy will do for you. We're gonna list out those barns. We're gonna make sure you have the right coverage and we are not gonna exclude them just because you're doing a business because that's what our policies are for. So then we're going to add on that liability coverage that you need for your boarding business, if you're giving lessons, if you're doing training, that'll all be made a part of your policy.
0: So if you're what happens if I'm leasing my property? Same thing? Or does the leasee? I was curious about that.
3: Okay. So if you own the property yeah. and you lease it to somebody else. Yeah, who brings in their um, horses
0: you- or training business or whatever.
3: Yes. So you as the owner would um, insure, typically will insure the barns and the house. And then the person leasing the property could take out one of two different types of policies. They could either take out an equine liability policy to cover the business that they're running. Or if they're living there, they could take out a farm policy, which would act like a renter's policy that most people are familiar with, um, that is going to pick up your household contents, your personal liability. And then also bring in that equine liability. But if you're living there, you own the property, you're living there, but you're leasing the barn out to someone else to run um, their business, then you need to make sure that they have a liability policy and that they name you on that policy so that you have protection if they cause a liability incident. Many homeowners or property owners um, don't require that additional step, but it's very important because your policy will not cover the activities of an independent who's leasing your property. Also, a lot of homeowners policies, again, will exclude coverage on the barns because you're leasing it to someone else. So that's another reason it's important to have the type of policy that's specific to the needs that you have.
0: And, and uh, they're going to sue both of you. The people that are, you know, somebody gets hurt or whatever the situation is, they're going to sue the person that's leasing from you and you. You're both getting sued. Um, exactly. So, and I've seen this go wrong so many times where people are, le- are leasing it to somebody and they don't have, make sure that the leasee has that insurance and them named on it. you got to do that. I wouldn't exactly. You don't do this unless that happens.
3: Exactly. And in fact, it should be written in your lease agreement that they maintain the policy, that they um, add you as an additional insured. We've even had clients go as far as requiring that they go, say, through my agency. If I'm writing the farm, they want them to carry it. Um, through us, so that we can keep an eye on, make sure that policy stays in place. It's very important that you trust the person you're leasing to, and that you have the proper documentation in place. In the in the um, unfortunate event that something would go wrong, and you know, Glenn, another question that we've gotten is, what if I have an unowned horse on my property that belongs to a friend? Um, and they don't pay board. Uh, Again, you should check your homeowner's policy because a lot of times that the fact that it's an unowned horse triggers um, the exclusion on the barn that that horse is housed in. So, it's so important not only to understand the policies that you carry on your property, on your auto, on anything that you have insurance on, but that you um, have the right type of coverage. So you need to talk to your agent or more importantly, talk to someone like me who specializes in this. This is all we write is equine liability, equine farm or policies for the horses.
0: So remind everyone what states you service.
3: Okay. So we can write in about 17 states and we're mostly, we're based in Ohio. We can write mostly in the Midwest and down the East coast. We also do some out West. We can write in California and Washington as well. Um, and you can find that list on our website. It's on the bottom of each page of our website to show the states that we can
0: write in. That's com, And you represent a bunch of, you're independent. So there's a bunch of different companies.
3: Yes, we do. The majority of our horse mortality policies go with Great American and the Hartford. And our farm policies, we have several major companies, most notably is Chubb Agribusiness and Travelers. But our companies are solid. They do a good job with claims adjusting. And we have a good rapport with the underwriters that we work with.
0: And how do they get a farm
3: owner's quote? Uh, farm owner's quote, you got to do a little bit of work for that. You need to fill out. We've we've shortened down the applications. Most companies, a farm application can be up to 10, 12 pages long. We've shortened it down to a two-page, what we call our short form questionnaire. It's going to ask some basic questions about the house, the buildings, um, any farm property, tack that you may want to cover. And then it asks also about the equine liability do you own horses what are you doing as a business how many shows or clinics do you estimate you're doing but with this basic information we can then submit that to our different companies for review and then get you some good quotes
5: hello i'm stephanie ruff and i'm aviva nabeski We're the hosts of the Dressage Today podcast, where you can find us talking about anything and everything dressage-related. Our conversations span the world of dressage from leading riders to local-level dressage heroes. We're talking training advice, showing tips, and sharing stories to inspire your own dressage journey. So tune in, then tack up. Hello, and welcome to the Dressage Today podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. Later on, we'll have an interesting conversation with professional event and dressage rider Chelsea Kennedy. Chelsea incorporates a lot of groundwork and mindfulness into her dressage program, and we look forward to learning more about that. But first, we're going to jump right into a serious topic. Aviva, you spend a lot of time teaching your own students and doing clinics in your area. What to you makes a good
6: student? You know, Stephanie, that's just such a fabulous question. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how do you find a good dressage instructor or trainer or whatever, but we don't always talk about what makes a good student. And, you know, I, I joke that um, I have a certain teaching style and my my students sort of self-select out. At times because they they <laughs> don't they don't work with me. And that is true because we all are individual in our styles. But I was I gonna think- say I think that probably
5: happens across the board. That happens with everyone. Yeah. Not everyone is suitable for everyone everyone. You know? Yeah,
6: and a trainer needs to learn how to how to train, how to yeah. reach people, how to educate. But there is a certain responsibility on the student as well, I think. And for me, there, there are a few things that make a good student. And I think the very first thing is the desire to learn. Um, we all talk about the student who comes week after week after week and has the same lesson over and over and <laughs> over again. And there's never any progress because the person is just making excuses and just going through the motions. Yeah. You know, I want somebody who is doing their homework, I want somebody who has humility um, who has an eagerness to learn, who leaves their ego, you know, at, at the, at, at a, you know, <laughs> the arena and says, I'm here to learn, not to be told that I'm good. Yeah. And, you know, I know I struggled with this as a student as well. I, I, I kid about the fact that I get um, I get physically sick before my lessons. And, um, and i get very nervous and it's almost as if i'm going to a competition and it's because my trainer's opinion matters to me yeah. i want to show her that i've been doing the heavy lifting behind the scenes that i am improving that i am understanding that i am getting better um and i and i want to see that with my students as well and it's not necessarily that they go from you know intra riders to fei riders in a year right I, about the degree of progress it's that I want to see that they are making progress that they feel happy with where they're going that when things get scary or difficult that they don't just throw up their hands and say let's find a a golden key to get around this that they want to work through the difficult processes of learning and and training Um, you know, I, I I joke a lot about the fact that dressage is hard. Um, you know, if it was easy, we would all go to the Olympics. Right. And we'd all be getting gold medals, and we're not. Um, you know, it takes a very special um, rider to get there. It takes a very special horse to get there. And there aren't a whole lot of them out there, but that's true in all sports. But what we can all be is better riders. And I, I, I think that, the good student is one who comes into the lesson open. Yeah. Um, You know, we all make excuses, you know, oh, well, my leg hurts and I can't do that. Or, oh, well, you know, I'm whatever. And okay, make the excuse, but now I want you to try. Right. Um, I had a trainer at one point who did not allow me to ask questions Um, Mm. she would tell me to do something and, and I'd say, I don't understand. And she'd say, just do it. (laughs) And there were times that that was really wonderful because I remember one lesson I had with her and she said, just do it. And I thought that what she was asking me to do was one thing, but what she was asking me to do was the aids for a shoulder in. And I did what she told me without any expectations. And I got a perfect shoulder in. Mm -hmm. And if she had told me, I'm giving you the aids for shoulder in. I probably wouldn't have listened to her. Right. So, being a student is sometimes knowing when to ask a question, and and also respecting when sometimes the trainer says to just do, do it. it. Stop it. thinking so much. Yeah <laughs> so don't don't think about it. Just do it. Right. And a good trainer knows when to say those things. Exactly. Yeah. But a good student also respects that the trainer knows what he or she is talking about and makes the effort to try. You know, none of us wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to ride badly today. You know, I think I'll yank on my horse a little bit and, you know, ride like a sack of potatoes all over the saddle and maybe jam my spurs into my horse. And I'm just going to look like crap. You know, we're all doing the best we can at any moment. Right. And some days we don't ride really well. Some days something does hurt or there is something emotional. And I know that Chelsea is going to talk about mindfulness and, you know, being present in the moment. And that's all well and good, but we're human beings. And sometimes we're not always that good at it. And we do, you know, bring that I was sitting in traffic for an hour, right? um, And I'm really stressed. And I'm really anxious, or I just got word that somebody I love and care for is sick. And I can't get that out of my mind. Yeah. You know, being aware of that and being able to share that with the trainer. You know, I, I, I know my students pretty well. I mean, I I got involved in a conversation online at one point about um, how, an instructor becomes a little bit of a therapist at times. It is
5: so true. In sometimes yeah. good, good, bad, or otherwise it, it and, ends and up, yeah. there's, there's a huge psychology sort of aspect it to is. it sometimes.
6: Yeah. <laughs> I I'm, I'm a trained social worker. I have a master's degree in social services. I, I, had a private practice for a while. I did hypnotherapy for a while. And I find that all of this, all of the skills that I developed as a social worker, I use as a horseback riding instructor. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a certain degree of therapy. And it's not that I want to know how you feel about your mother, right? what's going on in your in your marriage. But I need to know where your fear is. Um, And I need you to be open to telling me things so that I can help you learn. And I know when I I work with a student for the very first time, one of the first questions that I ask is, is there anything that your horse does that scares you? And it's not that I want to know that you're a chicken. It's not that I want to know that your horse is a jerk and, you know, tends to spend most of his, his ride on his hind legs. Um, but I want to know where your fear is so that I can help work around the fear. Because if you are so fearful of cantering that you can't, how can I help you learn to canter? Right. But if you can be honest with me and say, I'm afraid of not cantering, but I'm afraid of the transition because he likes to buck, then we can work through some ways to get into the transition without bucking. So I I want a student who is willing to learn, who is honest about their handicaps, whether they be mental or physical, who is able to say when I say it can be frustrating as I'll get at, I will say, um, you know, I say, do you can you feel it? That's it. Do you feel it? And then I get the no. No. <laughs> and you know, I want to go wring your neck because you should be, because it's really good right now. And, <laughs> It's okay. Let's stop and let's talk about right. what feeling is.
5: Because but at least they're being honest and saying no, I don't feel it. Instead of just saying yes because they don't and they don't want to, you know, address the fact that they don't feel it because you feel know stupid. they right no, exactly because they feel stupid. feel stupid. So no, it is absolutely better to be honest and say no, I don't feel it. So that, like you said, then you can stop and and explain or you know do something to try to get them
6: to feel a lot of people have an issue when they're first learning about trot lengthenings and you know i i joke with them and i say when you think it's good that's when it's wrong (laughs) when you when you feel it and it feels really expressive basically your horse is throwing its front end around and it's right when you have a really good lengthening it's a real subtle feel Yeah, You're not really going to feel that. You'll feel your horse rock back a little bit. You'll feel the horse take you a little bit. But it isn't this exceptional feeling that we all think it is. So being able to say to a rider, what you just got was great, and having them believe me is really important to me as well. Um, I think that you have to have faith in your trainer. I want I want a student who's going to question me, but who's also going to believe in me. Right. So I think there's a lot to being a good student, but probably the most important part of it is the the willing the willingness to be. To be bad at it. <laughs> And the,
5: and the willingness to be bad at it and the desire to want to get better. <laughs>
6: exactly. I, I started doing some groundwork work with, with Leo, with my trainer. And what my trainer said to me was, it's really hard and you're going to do it badly for a while. Right. But the way to learn is to be willing and to be humble and to do it poorly until you learn how to do it well. Yeah. You know, we, we didn't spring forward as capable writers, we we tend to forget there was a time when we learned how to post. Yeah, yeah. We were bad to begin with, but we've become better. And in some cases we've become good. So a student is one who was willing to embrace the crap in order to move forward to the good.
5: And I th- I think also, I and I think you probably, we probably find this in, in dressage writers because we are Because of the nature of dressage being so meticulous and detail-oriented, the people who ride dressage tend to be meticulous and detail-oriented and a little bit of a perfectionist kind of thing. And I think, because I've run into this in my own riding, being afraid to make the mistake. Um, And I've been told by more than one instructor, you know, like, go for it. Don't be, you know, be afraid to make a mistake because you're going to make a mistake, but at least you're, Trying and you know, but in our desire to be perfect, yes. we then don't do anything. And yes. it's, you know, and I'm sure you see this a lot when you're judging, because I got that a lot because I was always I'm I tend to be conservative because mm-hmm. I don't want to make mistakes, so it's it's exactly what you said: being willing to be bad and make mistakes and know that that's not the be all end all, you know, your horse is not going to go, well, she gave me the wrong canner aid two weeks ago. So I'm now not going to canner. Um, exactly.
6: Exactly. <laughs> and the only way that we and our horses learn to communicate with one another is, you know, we don't get angry or we shouldn't get angry with our horses when our horses make a mistake. Right. So we shouldn't be angry with ourselves with, when we make a mistake because that's are absolutely wrong.
5: And yet, and, and yet yeah. we, we, it, some of the, you know, sometimes we do, or we get frustrated at ourselves or we don't yep. want to try because we don't want to mess up. Um, but mess, but, but that is part of the learning process.
4: Exactly. So,
5: you know, so yes, well, whew,
6: okay. That was heavy for this <laughs> morning. Okay.
5: All right. Oh my goodness. But, not, but it is, it is, it is very true. And, um, you know and and i think a lot of i think the the psychology aspect to what you say is very very true especially because a lot of exactly what you said a lot of a lot of the people that you work with or that most of the people out there this is you know, they're, they're serious about their horses, but it's not their profession. It's not their, you know, nine, it's not their job all day, every day. So they, they do bring a lot of other stuff to the table because they do have full-time jobs other, you know, and they do have families. And I'm not saying professional horse people don't because they do as well, but you know, this is their in some ways this is their like stress relief and their escape and stuff, but it's supposed to be fun. It's it's supposed to be fun. So, yeah. So learning how to, you know, try to let go of some of the everything else that's weighing them down so that, so that you can be open to learning and, and relaxing and having fun and, you know, and all of that. And part of that's on the trainer too, to be able to, to create that environment. Um, of, you know, learning, but also being able to have fun and being able to laugh at yourself and take it seriously, but not so seriously that, you know.
6: Exactly. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, it shouldn't ruin your day if you have a bad lesson. Right. Although I'm not one to talk.
5: Yeah. No, I was going to say, yeah, no, yeah. like good it lessons shouldn't. will make your day. Bad lessons will make you go. oh sister. Yes. But no, it shouldn't ruin your day. It, it uh, you should, you, but yeah, you know, it, it's always a work in progress.
6: Absolutely. That's that whole patience thing again.
5: <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. I think that's gonna be a recurring theme.
6: Yes, I think so.
5: But yeah, so I think I think we can always always strive to be better instructors and better students um all the way around. And that makes us better
6: horse people. I agree.
5: We are going to move into our ask the L segment. So this question, um, is, is one that's a little more personal to you specifically Aviva and it comes okay. from Sue. Okay. Do you have a favorite test or favorite level to judge and what is it and why?
6: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Well, I I have to say, probably my favorite test to judge is first level test two. There's just something about the test that just has lovely flow for me. And I I feel as if it gives me a real... entry into the rider and the horse's training and basics i I think it's just a a one of the best written tests that that we have right now i mean i have tests that i don't enjoy judging as much i have to admit that training level test three with that serpentine that nobody rides well is one of those (laughs) tests you know and you know first level test three with that leg yield off the rail is always really hard to judge because it's a very difficult movement um, but first two just feels as if it sets the riders up to do well. Every movement flows into the next one. Every movement is inviting. And I just think it can showcase um, the relationship and the harmony between the horse and rider in ways that, that none of the other tests do. Um, but if you were to ask me my favorite level to judge And you know, I'm a graduate of the L program, so technically I can only judge at schooling shows from intro level to second level, although I do get people who come at third, fourth, and all of the FEI levels, as well as the eventing tests and, you know, Western dressage and gated and all the rest of that. But (laughs) given all of the tests out there to judge um, and all of the levels out there to judge, I think the one that I like the most is second level. And It's because it is such a difficult level. It is. You know, we we joke about it, you know, separating the ponies from the horses. Mm -hmm. Um, It just is so challenging. It's the horses finally now consistently on the bit. You're looking for honest collection, maybe not 100% of the test, but real collection. You're looking for... Suppleness, the aids are now a little bit more subtle. Things happen really fast <laughs> in second do. level. Yeah. And I, it just, when you see a really well-ridden second level test, I mean, yeah, we all love watching Grand Prix and we love watching the Olympics. And, you know, most of us sort of look at that as, yeah, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> but second level is something that every, every rider and every horse can achieve. Yep truly can achieve. Yeah. Are you going to get a 75%? Maybe not, but there isn't a horse out there that can't do a credible second right. level test if the rider does things well. Right. And so for me, judging second level is just a pleasure when it's done extremely well.
5: Yeah.
6: Um, I was scribing for um, one of my favorite judges, Ken Barbosa, um, many, many years ago. And a friend of mine came in the ring to ride a second level test. And she rode an absolutely beautiful test. And at the end of the test, and it was a very high scoring test. At the end of the test, Kim turned to me and she said, this is a horse who is an absolutely perfect second level horse. There's no struggle. He's doing everything with ease. He's not quite ready to move up to third level. He doesn't have that level of collection or extension quite that much suppleness, but this horse is meeting the challenges of second level in complete harmony with the rider. And that has stuck with me for more than a decade. Yeah. Yeah.
5: And making the move as a rider, well, and as a horse, making that move that transition from first level to a good second level is really hard because there is a big difference, um, you know, in, there's a big difference between first level and second level. So it's, it is hard, but I would agree that, that when you get it, when you, when you get good at second level, yeah, everything is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree. And it, and it flows, but it's tough. And I've heard that from many, many people as well, that they're all horses and and riders should be able to do at least second level, like you said. Whether or not it's going to set the world on fire, um, but as far as the movements and everything, second level is is doable for. It doesn't matter what your horse's breed is or size or you know anything like that. They can they can learn to do all the movements of second level. Exactly.
6: Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's just fun to see it when it's done well. well. Yes. Very good. Well, I
5: I would agree with you. Not that it matters, but I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) And so we 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 love the questions that we're getting. I'm sure you love them, right, Aviva?
6: Oh, they're awesome. Yeah, Yeah. they really make me think. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Hey, keeps you on your toes. So that's good. That's good. But we love the questions that we're getting and we're always open to For more, so if you have a question about showing or judging that you would like Viva to answer, you can email me at sruff at equinenetwork.com or reach out to us on Dressage Today's social media. When we return, our conversation with Chelsea Kennedy. horse happy and healthy and get rewarded with free products all at the same time. Farnum, Horse Health Products, and Vitaflex Pro are proud to celebrate the partnership between you and your horse. So they created the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. It's their way of giving back and provides an opportunity for you to earn complimentary full-size supplements, fly control, and grooming products that you use regularly. Receive one free product for every five purchase at any online or local retail store. View a complete list of eligible products at www.horsecareloyalty.com. Enroll and start earning your rewards. Chelsea Kennedy grew up in Connecticut, where she was a member of the Litchfield Pony Club, earning her HA certificate before leaving for college. After riding throughout college, she moved to Northeast Tennessee, where her eyes were open to some horsemanship ideas and tools that she had never seen before. She tweaked and utilized those tools as she expanded her business to a large facility in Virginia. Bringing several horses up the levels in dressage and eventing before selling them for their owners and running a private client's business as well. After meeting her husband, she moved back to the Northeast, where both of their families are, and pared her business down to just a few clients while focusing on social work. She began exploring meditation, which became a huge part of her going forward. Over the last 10 years, and while having two children, Her clientele has grown immensely and horses have become her full-time business again. As Chelsea says, I am in this business in a much healthier and more sustainable way than I was in my early days, which allows me to help my horses and my clients so much more effectively. Chelsea is currently based in Wales, Maine, and is helping connect riders in Area 1 to the bustling world of upper-level eventing through her network of fellow professional riders clinic opportunities, and her new home base at Unexpected Farm. Elsie, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
5: So kind of to start with, we'd like to find out a little bit more about your background. And so how did you get interested in horses and riding?
4: Um so I got to a little later in my life than a lot of people. Um my family had nothing to do with horses whatsoever except that my grandfather enjoyed um thoroughbred racing. But nobody <laughs> rode in my family. Um so I was in Girl Scouts as a young child and my mom uh sent me to sleepaway camp. I think I was probably 10. Um and I got to do horse camp there. And so that was like that started the ball rolling for sure. Once I was in, I was in. And uh, and when I got back from camp, she basically said, do you want to do dance lessons or do you want to ride? And it was no questions, definitely riding. And uh, from there, I just found a barn to to basically work a little at so I could keep riding um, because we didn't have a ton of of money and it's not a cheap sport, as you all know. And it just kept going. I joined Pony Club shortly after, and uh, and never stopped.
5: It's it's kind of funny. A lot of our stories are sort of the same. You know, you start, yeah. you get introduced to it to it one way or another. You have a choice to make. The choice is horses, or, <laughs> and then it just kind of.
6: It just snowballs from there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Just takes over your entire life.
4: <laughs> really? 100%. And I wouldn't really have it any other way. You know, I've tried. I've tried my hand at a couple other things. I can always, always, always come back to the horses.
5: Yeah. So who were your mentors or people that have influenced you and your riding over the years?
4: Well, I grew up in Connecticut, um, so in New England, and I rode with... Um, a then event rider and now dressage rider named Virginia Leary. Her and her husband, Jack, were big into the uh, eventing scene in New England for a lot of years. Um, And so she really helped me get my start. And then I I was fortunate to fall in with um, a trainer named Steve Milne, who was from the West Coast originally as uh, a show jumper and an event rider. Um, and he he coached our pony club and he continues to be just one of the best horsemen I've ever known. He is one of those people who just never, ever stops learning. He's like an encyclopedia of historical info and current training ideas, and he never stops collecting information. Um, and he really instilled in me the idea that the training process is always more important than how things look in any, you know, one small moment, um, to other people. So that he was a huge, huge influence in my, my riding work and continues to be. Um, and then I lived in Virginia Uh, for quite a lot of years and got to compete against and really keep my eye on people who were coming up in the eventing world, like Boyd Martin and Will Coleman and Doug Payne and Buck Davidson. And then obviously all of their predecessors were there Mm -hmm. in those competitions too, you know, Philip Dutton and the O'Connors and Bruce Davidson. Um, So that really had a huge influence on, on my, you know, kind of young career on my own as a professional and then luckily for me in the past several years, I've been really fortunate to be connected with Tick Maynard and his wife Sinead. Um, and working with Tick really, you know, turned my eye again from where Steve started it, um, even more fully to some of the best original horsemen in the US like Ray Hunt and Tom Durant and Buck Brannaman. And uh, lately even, even more introductions to some amazing modern horsemen like Tick himself, the Pirellis, Dan James, Jonathan Field. So there's been like a lot, a lot of great influences in my life, and they've kind of all been connected in small ways. Um, but it's been you know a huge evolution.
5: So has uh, have you always planned on being uh, an equine professional or? was there you you mentioned you tried doing so <laughs> dabbled kept, yeah kept coming back to horses but yeah have, have horses always been your plan yeah you know i think the people who knew me
4: when i was growing up in pony club would have said yes like there's nothing else she was going to do <laughs> um but i i you know my mom was really adamant that i go to college and i was ready to just do horse history out of high school you know um but i'm really glad that i went to college there was not An industry that I was like, yes, I really want a degree in that because when I I finished college, I knew I was just going to do horses. So the only other thing that I just loved in my life was art. And so I actually got my BFA. And then, yeah. And then, um, and then when I uh, was doing horses for a while, um, I came to a point where I needed needed a minute. <laughs> um, I think we might talk about that at some point here. I'm sure it will come up. But I dabbled then for quite a while in social service and and worked in um, some group homes for young mothers and their children and ended up doing a lot of parenting education around the time that I actually was having children myself, which was um, poignant and really useful on like a personal level and also you know, something I'm glad I, I spent
6: some time doing in my life. That's quite a, a change from a BFA to social services.
4: I know. Right. I yeah. know. But it's so interesting, like all, you know, between horses and the social service work and art It all, you know, there's this, there are common threads. Through yes, all of there that. are. Yeah. And it's been really fun to kind of pull things, you know, from each area of my life into others, you know?
6: Yeah. It's all connected. So you, you had a, a pivotal turning point. Um, you, you were with dabbling with horses and, and then you went into social services, but then you went back into to riding and you started looking at things a little bit differently. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah. So my turning point actually happened when I was a working professional in Virginia um, mm-hmm. I was riding a really lovely mare named Lady Lucy for an awesome owner that um, I had down there. And she was coming up through the levels and we were doing our first training level. And I made just some really not good choices for her out on cross country. I ended up getting hurt. She lost her confidence in both mm-hmm. me and in herself. And I really felt... Just unbelievably terrible about it. I mean, I was, you know, beating myself up in a way that I knew really wasn't healthy, but I also didn't know how not to do. Yeah. And I remember I was driving home uh, from that particular event, my ankle, you know, badly swollen and feeling like, ugh, like I just really messed up. And I, I had this like, it was almost like an epiphany. It was like this flash, this moment where I really recognized that. The entirety of my self-worth in that moment and in life in general, my like value as a human being was being wrapped up so completely in whether or not I was winning, like whether wow. how I was doing at competitions and I knew something had to change. Like I just knew I had to, to find a healthier way. Cause what I was doing was not landing me or the horses I was riding in any
6: good place. That's quite an epiphany. And that's really pretty insightful as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I feel really fortunate that that happened in my early (laughs) twenties.
6: And so (laughs) I was like, you
4: know, at a place where I felt like, Oh man, now I feel like I have to start over in some way, but also I was young enough to, to really have time to make a change that I knew I needed to make because what I was doing was
6: not sustainable. Yeah. So, what did you do?
4: Well, um, that's a big topic, <laughs> um, you know. That incident led me to really question some big things in life and in the world you know, the idea of self, the idea of ego, the idea of suffering. And I just went searching, um, you know, I started reading a lot of books, um, eventually. Uh, I found my way to a Buddhist retreat center that was near me. I I was doing a lot of reading of, you know, the ideas of Eastern cultures and Buddhist philosophy. And I found a community near the Charlottesville, Virginia area, founded by uh, a man named Tenzin Wangil Rinpoche. And I did a retreat there around my birthday in in May of 2007. And it was like, it was really life changing. Um, I ended up, you know, really connecting with that community, and ended up um, in a an organization called Three Doors that was founded by the same person, which teaches non secular meditation practices to communities and people all over the world. Um, and they run something called the Three Doors Academy, which is like a two and a half year program um, that really really asks people to dive in deep and um, use these practices and tools to examine how we move through our life, you know, and how we relate to the world and the people around us and our communities. And it, it was really revolutionary. Like it really changed um, how I move through the world and relate to myself and other people And it's continued to evolve, you know, in my personal practice over the years since I'm still really connected to that community, which is uh, like a wonderful base of support for me. Mm -hmm. And, And I think, you know, in turn, that really just changed my ability to be present with horses and relate to them without excess emotion and without, you know, delving too much into the past or too much into the future. I can meet them where they are. And I can do the same for myself and my students um, in a way that makes the work I do now not only sustainable, but actually, you know, joyful and you know something
6: I want to be doing daily. Well, that's sort of yeah. what social services oh. is all about, isn't it? It's starting where the client is, it's starting yeah. from now and yeah, being exactly. present in the now. Yeah. Yeah,
4: that's that's you know what I meant that there's this common thread. Like when you can, I think that when you learn how to be with yourself and be with the present moment a little differently than a lot of people generally do, it affects your whole life. You know, it affects how I am with my children and my husband and my clients and the horses and, you know, the people I worked with in social service. So yeah, it's all, it's all connected in that way.
5: So you are an event rider. You obviously you've been an event rider and you still, you still do that, but you also enjoy dressage and you have, as part of this whole journey, and some of the names you mentioned, obviously, you do a lot of groundwork with your your horses and your training. So how were you first introduced to those principles and what drew you to them?
4: Yeah. So uh, Steve, the trainer I mentioned before that I grew up with, he always taught me these basics that I thought were just um normal like that everybody taught their horses good boundaries and mutual respect and i thought that these were just skills that were part of everyone's repertoire um if only i know i know i feel so lucky looking back that that he was my one of my first influences because um you know when i started running my own businesses. And I would look around, I was like, Whoa, this is not how everybody (laughs) relates to horses. Um, And then when I ran my first farm in in the Northern corner of Tennessee, the the owner of that farm um, dropped a few more pebbles in that pond. And she gave me a few more principles and ideas and she gave me my first rope halter. You know, that was really uh, another little like, Turning point where I was like, huh, there's more here to know. And it slowly just grew from there um, until I got a horse called Unexpected or Eddie, we called him in the barn. He's actually who my current farm is named after. Um, he just needed something different, you know, he needed a different approach because of where he was at. And it really called upon me to increase my skill set and look at other ways to relate to him um, and then I saw a tip teaching at uh, equine affair several years back and you know I was like this is the stuff I'm doing and here's a person who's connecting it to his work in the event world and here's a person who's bridging that gap between like these good foundational basics and these understandings of horses that not everybody, you know, gets taught when they're young, and he's yeah. connecting that to, to the competition world. And I got really excited because you know it was, it was becoming a little more mainstream in the way that I was trying to make it in my own work. So
5: yeah. Right. Cause for a long time it 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 was very um I guess a little more western oriented and a little yeah. more like this is what you do. You do quote unquote natural horsemanship and yep. It doesn't they they didn't necessarily show how it could apply to your riding or or to competition like what you said and how it how it kind of crossed over. So, um, you know, and I mean, apparently you were introduced to some of those ideas, like you said, without really knowing it. And I kind of the same way my mentor taught always taught his horses. Yeah. Boundaries and Mm -hmm. personal space and all that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing though. It was right. It's just just the way we did it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you sort of were doing it long before you really knew you were doing it. Um, but so did you think it would apply to your sport or, you know, did tick kind of help really show you how that could happen?
4: Well, you know, I don't, because I grew up and it was just what we did. I didn't understand enough about basic animal behavior and training principles. Like, like it was just what we did. You know, there wasn't like um, too much theory behind it. Right. Um, And, and when I saw things that were like more complicated, like when I would watch like some, like a Liberty trainer or something, I, it all seemed like very magical, like, whoa, how are they making (laughs) that happen? but I knew it was something I like wanted to be able to do because the connection between the horse and the rider or the handler was so apparent, you know? Um, and then, you know, once I educated myself about some of the ID idea- ideas and theories behind the techniques and the, the magic, basically, it just made sense. Like it wasn't magic. It was just understanding how horses learn. Um, I always felt like from the beginning with the stuff that, that um, Steve instilled in, in my basic handling of horses, like those skills around leading, standing at the mounting block, working on the line, that I had like a bit of a leg up on riders who had to lead the horses with chain shanks or like be tossed up onto a moving target at the horse shows. Um, and that seemed to prove true in my riding career and for my students, you know, like Um, I brought a lot of difficult horses along and had a lot of success uh, moving up through the levels. And and I feel like uh, my students had that same kind of leg up. Like our horses were calm at the horse shows. They could walk with us quietly. We could get on without there being a fiasco. You know, they were more relaxed and able to work out in competition. So I saw the practical application, but now I know more and um, know that it really, really does.
6: Well, the concept that you're a team and that there has to be a relationship, I I, I struggle with this with with young people who want to just get on and ride. Yeah. And they don't want to do the whole horsemanship. They don't know how to handle their horses on the ground, how to lead yeah. them. You know, you, your horse has to lead correctly with you or you can get hurt. Yeah, um, exactly. And that that relationship that you have on the ground does translate on their backs.
4: It 100% and, does.
6: And people don't get that. So it's brilliant that that you have incorporated all of that into your, into your business model, into your students and the people that you work with. And it's such a bonus for your horses as well, because, you know, horses are herd animals and they need somebody to lead. Yeah, And most of them don't want to be the leaders.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they, they need, you know, that sense of understanding what the job is and how to answer the questions um, so that their anxiety stays low, you know, they're prey animals and they are always on the lookout for things that are going to get them. And so if we can help their world be very understandable, then their anxiety level stays low and their ability to learn is, is more present.
6: Yes. So you're an event rider, but you really love dressage, which is very unusual, Chelsea. Yeah. (laughs) So, so tell us a little bit about that. Most event riders do the dressage to get through it so that they can go, you know, run fast and jump high. But you see the dressage as a little bit more than that.
4: Yeah. I mean, when you get good scores in dressage, you're more likely to win at your event, right? Yeah. (laughs) I love finishing on my dressage score and being at the top of the leaderboard the whole time. You know, why not start there? It makes sense.
5: The Olympics Um, just showed that, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
4: You know, I and I think even as a young person, I've always been really amazed by the seamlessness of it when it's done well. You know, I feel that way about the liberty work. I feel that way about a good hunter round. Like I want all my show jumping to look like that. Um, I just really love the way in dressage, the connection between horse and rider is super evident when they can show like a quiet, relaxed, but also like athletic and powerful test under the pressure of competition. Like that doesn't just happen through muscle that happens through finesse and through a mutual understanding. And I think it says a lot about the basics that a rider has cultivated with their horse. um, when, when they can put in a test like that and then still go out and gallop cross country and then bring it all back together for show jumping.
5: It's nice to see. And actually, I think, and you probably can speak to this a little better th- than I can, that since the format of eventing has changed to the shorter format, dressage has become more important, wouldn't you say?
4: Yeah, I 100% think so. You know, obviously, the the type of horse that um, we're seeing out yeah. at the upper levels of competition has really changed. And, and because of the shortening of the format, we're seeing, you know, quite a good many warm buds at the very top who maybe couldn't have run the long format. Um, and their athleticism is, is uh huge and they can put in dressage tests, you know, with the best of them out in the straight dressage world. Um, yeah. and so why not, you know, why not embrace that and really show off that ability to, to do both amazing flat work and jump around, really
2: well
6: yeah you know one of the things that we talk about with classical dressage or straight dressage versus eventing dressage is that dressage riders do only one sport mm -hmm. and they specialize in it and that's what they do whereas an eventing horse is a triathlete and the thing that's so exciting about eventing is that there are three very different disciplines and I know um, Jimmy Wofford talks a lot about the fact that an event horse cannot do dressage in the same way that a just dressage horse does, because the the idea of submission is a little bit different, that mm-hmm. a dressage horse has to be submissive to the rider and listen to the aids, where an event horse has to, at some point, particularly at the upper levels, think for himself. Yeah or they run into trouble. So how do you reconcile that with your more um, natural horsemanship approach and your groundwork approach? How do you teach the horse to be able to listen and be on your aids in the sandbox, but then be more independent out cross country.
4: You know that's a really great question. Actually, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so one of the first things that I teach all the horses on the ground is curiosity, because you know horses being prey animals, they their instinct when something is new or different or frightening or erratic is to leave. Right. They yes. want to get out of there. So, but they can't do that if they're going to run around across cross country course, or even if they're going to do well in a dressage arena. Right. So they need to become curious about their surroundings and want to investigate. And that curiosity can be cultivated and can grow into like tenacity, you know, like, um, when, when you have a horse that at first is worried about the way, uh, like, you know, a particular jump looks. And you can teach them that investigating, going in, sniffing, touching, looking at, you know, being around those things this is actually interesting and not frightening. Then that, that skill slowly expands until they're like, Ooh, what's that? Oh, I want to go see that. Let's go over there and check that out. And that can build and build and build. And so they're like, let me add it, you know? And, um, I don't think that, you know, it's one or the other, like you can have a horse that's incredibly responsive and respectful to the aids and and very submissive to the aids, but, but you can also signal them when it's time for them to go be curious and investigate and be a little tenacious and say, all right, it's on you. Check it out. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah,
6: it does. that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at things. You know, we, we have a tendency, we we dressage riders tend to be a little bit wimpy about stuff. And so <laughs> we're into avoidance. Yeah. Um, I love that idea of of cultivating curiosity and making the curiosity something that they can feel proud of and strong yeah. in.
4: Yeah. Um, I've, I, I've got a, a, a woman who recently became a client of mine who was on a horse and her, or the, that she's been partnered with for quite a long time. And there you know, strictly dressage riders and their bubble, their like world had gotten so small because she was afraid and the horse was afraid yeah. and everything just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until like, she was wrestling with the horse to try to keep its head down. So it wouldn't look at anything and therefore wouldn't be scared. And they they, you know, they could ride on a 20 meter circle in the middle of the ring. And, and she was sad about that. And the horse was worried. and. So we like stripped it back and we taught it how to be curious. And now she's like, she's riding in the outdoor with the brand new mirrors being installed. And I'm weed whacking and there's a you know lawnmower going and, you know, the horse is coming in and, and they're like loving life again, yeah. you know, and, and the horse just needed to be taught that he was fine to check things out.
5: Right.
6: And uh horse and rider are much happier for it. That's great. That's, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I did a I I judged a fix a test yesterday and there was a lot of stuff <laughs> going on during huh? during the rides. You know, the tent kind of lost part of its roof and there was yeah. somebody <laughs> who was mowing and there was a lot of traffic. And, you know, it was interesting because the way that we all approached it was sort of um you know, oh, all of this stuff going on and the horse needs to learn and experience it and get through it and trust the rider that it's okay. Yeah. Um, But we didn't really experience it. I think in the same way that you're talking about. And I think the way that you're talking about would make it so much more manageable and so much better for the horse and the rider. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it takes time. Like you have to be able, it's interesting because it feels like it takes a lot of time up front. But it's amazing how quickly things like snowball yes. has that, that feeling, you know, like y- you want to take that time because you're going to get fat get to where you actually want to be way faster if you just take it.
5: Yeah. That's, that is very good advice for all of us in many things. Yeah. <laughs> so that patience, patience, Aviva, patience.
6: Yeah, I don't know the, the meaning of that word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: so speaking of dressage you've got you have Lara graves coming to your farm for two-day clinic which I'm very personally am very excited about because I am going to be up there and we're going to be filming for I'm jealous I know for <laughs> Come on,
4: Come on.
5: <laughs> our video subscription site so what made you know first of all Laura is obviously a big name she's an Olympian and and um you know so what made you what about her stood out to you? Have you ridden with her before or, you know, how, how do you know her? How'd you get her up there? And and what are your expectations?
4: Yeah. Um, I'm really fortunate that one of my current clients had a very well-bred young horse that we decided, um, was better suited for the straight dressage track than for eventing. Um, and so after I put some good basics on him, um, This woman, Leslie, had a connection with Laura from a clinic she had uh, gone to audit. And so she connected with Laura about him and Laura agreed to take him on. So while he was with her, I got to go down and ride him a few times to see what they were working on and where things were at in case the owner decided to keep him as a dressage ride. Um, So while I was down there, I got to connect with Laura a bit and commiserate with her about (laughs) like, you know, our New England roots um uh, And she's, you know, a lovely person as well as a lovely writer. Uh And so I've got this amazing new facility here in Maine, and I'm working really hard to make sure we can bring quality education up here. Um, Maine is a bit of a, you know, far off destination <laughs> for a lot of really good clinicians. And it's where my family is. And I want it to also become, um, a destination for the region. I want my farm to be a place where people are wondering what's coming next. And I think Laura coming, uh, is a nice way to put us on the map. So I'm really excited to have her up and, uh, have such you know a prestigious dressage rider here in in just the first year of our
5: of our new farm. My last question for you is something that we like to ask everybody on our interviews and you've alluded to this a little bit throughout your entire all the all the questions that you answered but what do you feel makes a good horse person? <laughs>
4: That's a huge question as it well, isn't it? It
5: is a huge question. So. <laughs>
4: um, well, and bear with me. I'll try to give a useful answer without going on too long. Um, you know, I think the first thing is that they need to understand that horses exist in the present. They don't exist in the past or the future in the way most people do. And I think the ability for people to be present is really difficult. Like we spend our time thinking about the past and thinking about what's coming next more often than we do just exist in, in the now. And, um, that ability to be present with a horse and meet them where they are is, is so essential for good work. And I think when you watch the best horse people in the world, you can see it like they go into that zone when they're with their horse and they are nowhere else. Um, and I think, you know the meditation work that I do and the tools that I give my rider that riders that come from that space um, really promote that quality of presence that I think is 100 necessary. Um, without it, you can't have good feel for what the horse is is trying to do, and you can't have good timing to help the horse understand what you want through you know appropriate release of pressure at the right moments. Um, and you also can't see when the horse is trying if you're not present. You have to be able to catch them when they when they put the effort in and attempt to give you the right answer so that you can show them they're on the right track. Um, and unless you're really, really present in the moment, you you can't do that. Uh, I think a really good horse person knows that they don't know everything. And that they don't have the one right answer and that they are always, always seeking to learn. And I think on that same note, you know, they work really hard to cultivate better work in themselves, better feel, better timing, better position. And that they really work to find the joy in those small victories as well as the large, you know, they're psyched when they win a competition, but they're also psyched when their horse, you know, figures out how to move away from a specific pressure and they celebrate that like 1% better in their people and in their animals. And it's just obvious that they're in it for the love of the horse.
6: Oh, I so oh, wish to was nice. to the, the Maryland.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're always welcome in me.
5: Thank you. <laughs> this has been a really kind of enlightening, yeah, conversation, and um, I'm very excited to to meet you in person and to go up there, and we'll be filming with you as well. So we'll have more. We'll have more from Chelsea coming coming very soon. Uh, but thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I look
4: forward to seeing you soon, Stephanie.
6: Thank you so much, Chelsea. This has been such a pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to know you better, even if it's only through the internet.
4: <laughs> Sounds great, Aviva. Thanks.
6: Many thanks to Chelsea Kennedy for
5: talking with us today, and also to our sponsor, the Horse Care Loyalty Program. Thanks for listening to the Dressage Today podcast. If you've missed any episodes or to subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Learn more and read in-depth training articles at dressagetoday.com, or you can visit our subscription video site, ondemand.dressagetoday.com. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Happy riding, and we'll see you at X. The Dressage Today podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.